All right, there we go. We are family. You know something? I just kind of feel it's wrong for us to hear that week after week and no one clap. So I want to ask you to reboot that. I want to see. Now, I know that we are a predominantly Caucasian church and we lack rhythm. All right? But I want to test you. I think we have enough rhythm to clap to that music. So here we go. We're going to reboot it again and I'll even lead you. All right? Here we go. I've never done this in my life. My wife is so embarrassed. Look at my daughter up here to dance with me, maybe. Oh, well, anyway. All right, there we go. Yeah, nothing like embarrassing your wife as a pastor. Let's pray together. Father God, what a joy to just be able to laugh together, clap together, and actually celebrate the idea that uh, we are family. That song may not have been written for us, but we can certainly apply that to this message in Ephesians, that you have given us life, You've made us your children, and we don't just get to be children of God, we get to be the family of God. So I pray you teach us this morning one more important truth about what that looks like as we try to live as family. And all God's people said, amen? Amen. Why do you go to work? Why do you go to work? Now this may be the easiest question you've ever been asked by a pastor. Why do you go to work? (laughs) Someone will say Jesus because when most pastors ask questions, you just kind of assume that's the right answer. I mean, even if I'm describing a squirrel, kids will say, so what am I describing? They'll say Jesus. (laughs) But why do you go to work? To make money. That's right. Number one reason? You got to pay the bills. You got to support yourself. You got to support your family. Need to plan for your future. Payday is a good thing. Amen? Anybody here like get depressed when payday's rolling around? So there's nothing wrong with going to work to make a living. In fact, we're going to see today that that's actually part of God's design. God designed work. The scriptures say that a laborer is worthy of his hire. The scriptures in Proverbs often uh, talk about the importance of diligence and the value of hard work and, and the fact that work is actually a gift from God. So there's nothing wrong with that being the first thing that comes to our mind. But what if you didn't need the money? What if you had just enough money to pay all your bills and you didn't have to go to work? And you're not in your 60s. You're not even in your 50s. Why go to work? Is it just to get more money? Is it just to get more than what we need? Um, Is there a purpose behind work that perhaps we are missing that would breathe more meaning more significance into this thing that we call a job i think there is pray with me father god i pray this morning that you teach us from your word and you teach us about this thing called work and you also teach us father uh, 
some deeper significance that you want us to breathe into it today. Father, pretty much everyone in this room is either has a job or had a job or wishes they could get a job. In some cases, this topic is painful this morning because people are between jobs or out of work or underemployed and we recognize that. So Father, wherever we are, whether we are working at no pay but great benefits, staying home as a stay-at-home mom or dad, or whether we are in the workplace and the marketplace uh, and we feel like we are overworked, wherever we are, I pray that you would breathe new meaning into this thing called work. That's my prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and let me first set the context of today's message, because the context actually is one that usually is, helps us understand why this passage is here. In this case, the context is actually confusing. It confused me when I looked at it. Every time I've looked at this passage over the years, I've thought, why here? It's a great passage, great topic, short passage, one single verse, but I've often been puzzled by the location of it. You say, Dale, why is that? Here's the context. The context in Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 is all about new relationships that grow out of our new life. New relationships that grow out of our new life. It goes all the way back up when you pick it up in verse 23, 24 of the chapter when he says, Now you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, the new you, it could be translated, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. In other words, you are a new person. Remember that sermon a few weeks back where we talked about you are not just a forgiven worm, but you are a new life redeemed reborn butterfly big difference we have a new life and then that new life at the center of it should be new relationships healthy relationships whether we're talking marriage or parenting or family or the workplace and there's this section of relational truths and ryan pointed out a couple weeks back a great insight that there's five of these truths and every one of them starts with a negative statement don't do that and a positive, but do this instead, because you're going from the old to the new. See that? So it's old you, don't live like the old you, but yes, live like the new you, and it gives the reason for it. For example, verse 25 was, put aside falsehood, quit lying, the positive, but speak truth to one another in love, and the reason why is because we are connected as family. And that certainly would apply to the literal family as well in terms of marriage and parenting, etc. And then last week we looked at verse 26 and 27 where he says, Look, be angry, that's going to happen, but don't let your anger lead to sin. Don't have sinful anger as part of your life. Positive, but don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it quickly. Why? Because you're at risk. Because the devil is looking for an opportunity to undo you and to defeat you so that you see you see that you see the rhythm and then if we jump over today's verse to verse 29 which will be in two weeks awesome passage the negative is stop using hurtful words but instead use words that build one another up because we are called to give grace to one another and then in verse 
30 and 31, 31 and 32, we're going to study three weeks from now, stop getting even, but start forgiving and giving grace that you might love the way you've been loved by Jesus. So there's this great passage all about speaking truth and being honest and forgiving and handle our anger and, and have a forgiving, grace-filled relationships. And then right in the middle of this section, we hit today's passage. And here is what it is. Listen to it and just kind of wonder, so where's this come from? Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has a need. Quit being a thief, get a job, and share with others. Quit being a thief, get a job, share with others. Why would this be right in the middle of this section on communication principles, on dealing with anger, on how to handle truthfulness in the midst of frustration and anger? And here is what I've realized is that this passage is pausing to address what I believe must have been one of the major causes of conflict in this church. And one of the major conflicts in the church is more people were being takers instead of givers. They were takers instead of givers. That's why the title today is Why Work? Hashtag takers versus givers. If you get that, you've got the theme of the morning. So let me break it down into three big ideas. Number one, don't be a taker. Number two, get a job. Number three, work for a different reason. Work for a different reason, that is to actually nurture generosity got it let's look at the first first we can knock this out pretty quick don't be a taker don't be a taker verse nine the word says and you can read it in greek or english it doesn't matter it means the same thing he who steals must steal no longer boom quit being a thief the greek word is actually uh, the greek word is the verb klepto does that sound like a word you recognize what would that be in english yeah, like it, don't be a klepto, right? Which is short for kleptomaniac, which is someone who what? Steals as a habit, right? And, and there were people in the church, as you try to think, what's he talking about here? And I think there's maybe three different things I'd point out. Number one, let the thief no longer steal, literally. I, th- I personally lean toward the more literal translation of this passage. In the context, there were people who were coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and in their old life, that's how they made a living. Man, they knew how to rip people off. They knew how to steal from others. Now, you can try to play this out all kinds of ways. Maybe this is the shady used car salesman that's always lying to somebody, or maybe he's a literal thief. But, you know, whatever it is, this person gets by by ripping off others. Quit it. He says, quit doing that. Don't live like a thief. Don't be a taker. Don't do that. And the reason is that was the old you in which, hey, that's what I do, man. That's just kind of how I've done Maybe there were people in that culture, by the way, who grew up as petty thieves from, from when they were children even. You know, that's kind of how they helped support their family. You, you know, and, and there are certain cultures in the world in which if someone's dumb enough to leave it out, there's nothing wrong with taking it. You go to other cultures in this country, in this world, and you'll find cultures in which that's not even looked down on. So, number one, if you have made your living as a thief, I'm telling you this morning, stop. Got it? Got it. Interesting. 
Number two, I think you could also apply this to the fact that some people in the church were probably being sluggards. And the scripture often uses this concept of don't be a sluggard. Titus chapter 1 verse 12, we'll not read it, but write it down if you want to cross-reference me this week. Titus 1 12 talks about Cretans are, are, are just known. They're by reputation. They're lazy. Uh, they're gluttonous. Uh, and, and, they, and, they, and they steal. And, and it describes these lazy, uh, that there are people in the culture that are just known for being lazy and taking advantage of others. And if so, don't do that. Instead, he says, be willing to labor with your hands. Be willing to get your hands dirty, get a job, do whatever God has enabled you to do, and go for it. Now, by the way, if you're unemployed today, but you're looking for work, this is not passage. This passage is not criticizing you or down on you so let me just say that because i know some people in our culture today we are underemployed or else you are you wish you could get a better job and 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 this is not a a morning for you to feel guilty if you are if you are unemployed and looking and doing your best to try to support yourself then god is god is smiling on you today so this is not attacking that but it is attacking the person that's just a lazy lazy sluggard in fact there's a passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Write that reference down, 2 Thess 3.10, in which the Apostle Paul actually writes to the Thessalonian church, and there were people there that were taking advantage of the generosity of the church, and they weren't working. And Paul said it was so serious, he actually makes the statement, if someone is not willing to work, don't let them eat. Don't feed them if they're unwilling to work. Now that may sound kind of harsh, but what I think what that's pointing out is the third application of this passage. And that is, don't take advantage of others' generosity. In almost every New Testament church, we'll see these little allusions to the fact that the New Testament church was indeed a family. And it was often a family of faith. And it was often a family of faith more so than it is here in America today where when you came to faith in Christ, you often were cut off from your family. When you came to faith in Christ, you were, you were ostracized in the community. When you came to faith in Christ, you quite likely did lose your job. So there, there was this problem. We see it all the way from Acts chapter 2 through the epistles. Remember in Acts 2, for example, one of the issues was that they were coming to faith and they were having to pool their resources. And it says, and they were sharing with one another in order to care for one another. So the Christian church, especially at this time in history, in, in, in this part of the world, was a suffering church where people had to help one another much more so than we probably do today. So you need to go back and understand that in the culture, there were a lot of people that just coming to Jesus meant you were out of work. I was, a few years ago, I had the privilege of teaching a conference for um, people who were working for um, NGOs or non-governmental agencies in Morocco in an Islamic environment. And, and, uh, and one of the things we met was we met some new believers in Christ. And, and a consistent part of their story was that as soon as it was public to their family and to their job that they had declared their allegiance to Jesus instead of Allah in terms of their Islamic country's background, they often, almost always, would lose their job. And trying to get employed was tough. And their family would often kick them out, if not worse. So 
the early church, and in parts of the world today, the church today, uh, a little unlike in the U.S., most of you today, you may be discriminated against in some way in the workplace because of your faith. I think it's getting worse, and I think it will get worse in the future. But in this time and period, many people were even totally, totally unable to care for themselves because of their faith in Christ. So in that context, some people would be helped by the church and you get comfortable being helped by the church and it got so bad that like the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians had to say, look, those among you that are really desperate care for one another, but if someone is able to work and not willing to work, don't let them eat. So this was a problem. Don't take advantage of the generosity of this new group called the church but yet there are people in need so what is the right way for us to both care for the needy as well as solve this problem that was going on in the church and that's where we lead to the next big idea which is hey here's an idea get a job get to work so don't be a taker but instead, if you can work, get a work, get, you know, get labor, be willing to even work with your hands to, to help and bring in some income any way you can. Now let's make some observations about this thing called work that we're commanded to do in verse 28. Steal no more, but yet labor, performing with his hands that which is good. Number one. One thing this reminds me of is that work is not a result of sin. It's not a result of the fall of man. It only got harder in the fall. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, keep your finger in Ephesians or a bookmark on your tablet. If you're using a tablet, go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, the creation of man and the creation of woman, but also the creation of work. Very first passage on work in the scriptures. okay you ready you there pick it up in chapter 2 verse 15 then the lord god took the man put him in the garden of eden to cultivate it and keep it to cultivate it and keep it in hebrew these words mean to make it fruitful uh, to care for it uh, to make, help it to bear even more fruit cultivate it and keep it and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any fruit of the garden you may eat freely. But then he says, Don't eat of the tree of good and evil, of knowledge of good and evil. So, but we're not talking about verse 17. I'm talking about verse 16. He says, Look, so in other words, cultivate the garden and, uh, and, 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 and make it fruitful, and then eat of the fruit of your labor. And that is a good thing. God wants you to be able to eat of the fruit of your labor. Uh, there's a great passage we'll look at later on in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you want to note it, verse 17 to 19, where he refers to work, and he says that, that work and income is provided by God who blesses us with all things to enjoy. So the concept of working so that you can eat of the fruit of your labor and even enjoy some of the fruit of your labor is not a guilt thing, it's a God thing. God designed work for those two reasons. But he also designed work for more than that. And that's where we're headed. But understand that your work, it's kind of like if mankind had never sinned, we would have still had jobs. Okay, work is not as a result of the fall. 
It's God's design for us as human beings. Number two, so how does work change? Work is not removed by Christ when you come to faith. It's just redefined by Christ. We're to think radically differently when we go out the door on Monday morning or whenever it is to go to work. Now, how are we to think differently? This passage doesn't go into that. So I want to keep your finger here, and I want to go to the book of Colossians. So hang to the right, one book, go to the book of Colossians, and pick it up in chapter 3, verse 22. And this passage is so rich, I decided to put it on the screen for those of you that didn't have a Bible. But if you have your Bible, open to it, because you're going to want to mark this. So here's how it says. Now notice how radically different the Christian is to think about going to work as opposed to the person that does not follow Jesus Christ. Here it is. Slaves or workers. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men. Don't just do it to please your boss. It's okay if bosses are pleased, by the way. But don't just do it to please men. But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord or respecting the Lord, whatever you do, now this includes how many jobs? Anybody in the room do something outside of whatever you do? Okay, so this is all of us, right? Okay, it doesn't matter what you do. It says whatever you do, do your work heartily. It means from the soul. It means from the heart, from the soul. Put your soul into it. Do it with joy and enthusiasm, doing your best. Why? Do it heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, that is eternal rewards, it is the Lord Jesus whom you serve. So this, this is a radically different way to think about work in at least three ways. I like to pop them out so you don't miss them. Here they are. Number one, when you go to work tomorrow, you work for a heavenly boss. Therefore, your job is a sacred job. It's a sacred calling from God. Every job that God provides that is not immoral is a sacred job. Some of you think, well, Dale, you know, you and Ryan and Jonathan and others, you guys get to be pastors, right? So we get to work for God. You know, guess what? You go to work tomorrow to work for God because you are a servant of Jesus Christ and he provides different employers and they don't even know it, but they are paying you to work for God. Isn't that cool to think? Who do you work for? Boom. Let me get some examples. Who do you work for? Right here. Yep. Yep yourself you just wrecked my illustration okay no okay so who do you get a check from after you work for yourself thank you northwest mutual okay thank them tomorrow for paying you to work for god you will no you won't but anyway i wouldn't but anyway yeah maybe try that see what they say so who do you work for steve ucla okay anybody work for usc Okay, the dark side's not represented. Okay, okay, but, but I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Okay, so you, you may work for UCLA or, or USC. Um, who do you work for? Who else? Boom. My brother. Your brother. Okay. So whether you work for UCLA or your brother or Nor- Northwestern Mutual, it doesn't matter. You work ultimately for God. You go to work with the attitude, God, thank you 
Thank you that this employer is going to actually pay me to show up and represent Jesus Christ. You'll work for God. you got a sacred job. See, that changes the way we think. If that's true, the second thing is true. You work for a higher standard. You work for a heavenly boss. You also work to a higher standard. So you should serve heartily as unto the Lord. See, if I'm just working for people, and if I don't like those people, or those people aren't very nice to me, or they underpay me, how many of you in the room get overpaid? Raise your hand. For, okay, I'm just teasing. I see no hands jumped up there. If I ask it, me flip it around. How many of you, let's just be honest, how many of you really feel in your gut that you're underpaid? Raise your hand. Only a few. How many of you just are, oh, never mind. Okay. How many of you don't want to vote? Okay, yeah. But if I work for God, if I'm serving Christ, then I work to a higher standard. I want to serve heartily as unto the Lord, no matter who is writing my paycheck. And number three, and this is what I want to talk about most this morning, you work for a higher purpose. So pursue the greater mission behind your job. You work for a higher purpose. Because if I just work for some secular company that comes and goes, and you know that's one thing, but wow, if I work for a, if I work for a heavenly boss for, to a higher standard with a greater, higher purpose, then it breathes a whole new life into my ministry. We've already looked at Colossians chapter 3.24 that it turns my work into worship. What do I mean by a higher purpose? Here's what I mean by a higher purpose. It turns my work into worship. Because I do it for the glory of God. Anything done to the glory of God is worship. That's why next Sunday morning, we are not canceling our worship services. We are distributing our worship services all throughout North County as we worship in a little different way. But you don't have to wait for Community Serve Day to do that. See, you worship when you work to the glory of God. So when you're getting ready to go out the door in the morning, uh, you've maybe heard me say this before, you should kiss your spouse on the way out the door and you should say, sweetheart, I, I don't want to be late for worship. See, don't say I, I don't want to be late for work. You just downgraded it. Say, I don't, I don't want to be late for my worship service at the company, on the job doesn't matter whether you are digging ditches or laying bricks or you're a doctor or you're a lawyer or you're selling investment packages or you're working for the schools or it doesn't matter. Don't be late for worship. Work is an opportunity to, to actually worship. Number two, it enhances your witness. See, without going to work, we just downgraded our potential for impacting the world for Jesus Christ. Working enhances your witness. I love 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 on this one. 1 Thess 4.11. Let me read it to you. 1 Thess 4.11 says this. Now may your God and Father himself... Oops, wrong chapter. Here we go. 1 Thess 4.11. It says, But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more at loving one another and to make it your ambition... And then he, just, he describes their daily life. To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, don't be a troublemaker, to attend to your own business, 
and to work with your hands. Just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward those outside of the faith or outsiders and not be in any need. You don't need to be a taker because you're working. And you're working in a way that's just got a quiet, non-troublesome spirit. And it says even just doing that enhances your witness to outsiders. They appreciate that. So it's a place in which you have a great opportunity as you do your best and serve joyfully, enthusiastically, and, and, and then you look for meeting needs around you. And that's my third way in which we have a, a greater mission when we go to work, and that is it expands your capacity for compassion. See, the capacity for compassion goes up as your income goes up. Pretty hard to understand, isn't it? But we miss that. Because normally we get a raise, our instant thought is, wow, that's great. <laughs> we got a little more to spend, right? And that's true that as you get a raise, it's okay to have a little more to spend. But what does this passage teach? It teaches in Ephesians 4, let's go back to our passage, labor, performing work with your hands, that which is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has a need. So you get to experience the joy of compassion, the joy of saying, wow, you know something? I got a little extra in the bank so that when I see someone else who's going through a tough time, I have the capacity to love on them, to give them a gift, to, to help them out a little bit. And it's a different way of thinking about work. It redefines the value of that work. Okay, so we work for a greater boss, we work for a higher standard to a higher standard, and definitely we work with a greater sense of a greater mission that's involved in the work. And that's where we want to end today, is this final part of the passage. Number one is quit being a taker if you are one. Any thieves in the room, quit stealing. Number two, get a job. Do whatever you have to do if you can. Do your very best to bring in some income. But as we bring in more income, don't just consume. And that is the American disease, isn't it? I mean, it's so tempting to think, oh, wow, now I can boom. And we live in a culture that specializes in marketing all of the advantages of just spend a little bit more. And what he's saying is get excited about being able to, to, to not only enjoy it, but wow, guess what? I can now give more. I can now see a need and meet it. So you work to give it away. That's different. How many of you ever remember going through college and being told by your professors and everyone else, guess what? You're going to school, you're getting an education so that, guess what? You're going to be able to make more money and give it away. Anybody ever hear that? That's exactly what you're hearing this morning. It's the joy of generosity. It's connected to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. One way I always love to see it connected is whenever I... Um, and when you think of spiritual health in the Bible, there's a trilogy that is consistently repeated to measure spiritual health. Anybody know what it is? Three key words. 
The Apostle Paul measured every church he wrote letters to by these three things. He wanted to see them growing in faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. He repeats it in every time he writes churches. It's like people talk about how do you measure a healthy church? You measure a healthy church not by numbers of backsides in the pew or dollars in the plate or anything else. You measure it more than anything else by are we growing in faith, hope, and love? And, and when I look at this topic of generosity, I see where faith, hope, and love, all three come into play. For example, generosity displays my love for Christ. It displays my love for Christ. First, 2 Corinthians 9.15, if you do the appointments with God this week, I really encourage you to do that as a Monday through Friday habit, okay? If you're not signed up, sign up on your Connect card or text in. But in one of those, we'll talk about the fact that we love because He first loved us. So, you know, we're not encouraging generosity out of guilt. We're not encouraging generosity out of trying to earn more brownie points with God. We're saying you should be generous in response to the generosity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is generous with us. God is generous with us. He loves us, and therefore we love Him back. And, and one way in which we show our love for God is loving others. In our old life, we wanted to make more to have more. In this life, we want to make more also to give more. You say, well, Dale, where is that taught? Second thing, generosity demonstrates my faith in Christ. Go to 1 Timothy 6, 17. If you have a Bible, turn here. This passage is too rich to just hear me read it. 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6.17 says this. It says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now there's a lot that we'll unpack from this passage. This is the last passage we'll look at. Generosity demonstrates my love for God, but it also demonstrates my faith in God, my faith in Christ. Because he says, look, those who are rich in this present world, those who have a little extra, all right? Those who have a little extra. He says, instruct them to don't just be rich, but number one, he says, don't put your hope or your faith in your riches, but in, put your faith in the one who supplies the riches. It's kind of like, are you going to put your faith in what you got in the bank or are you going to put your faith in the one who keeps dumping money into the bank, okay? He says, it's God who supplies you. He supplies your work. He supplies your, your, your needs, Trust in God, not the things that God supplies. Trust the supplier, not the supplies. So I demonstrate my faith in Christ whenever I'm more generous. Now, some of you already have shut me down because this passage begins, instruct those who are rich in this present world. And most of you, if I interviewed you coming in the door and said, are you rich? Most of you, if you're like me, would have said, well, I don't think I fall into that category. 
I mean, there are rich people. I've met a few, and, and you know, you know, but I'm not in the rich category. We have to begin to understand that on a global basis, and this is not to meant to take light of the struggle some of us have to just pay the bills, but on a global basis, most of our problems are rich man problems, that we really are among the rich of this world. Now, let me just very briefly prove that to you statistically. If you want to read a book that will just kind of gently shake you up, I would recommend the book Interrupted by Jen Hatmaker. But she talks in here about the world and kind of how those of us in America line up with it. But not in a, like, we should feel guilty, but it's just this is our reality. She says there's over 6 billion people on planet Earth. Half of the world lives on less than $2.50 a day. That's 50% of people are surviving on the equivalent of less than $2.50 a day. The wealthiest one billion, the top sixth, average $70 a day. If you make $35,000 a year as a family, not just as a person, as a family, so if you make $35,000 or more, you're in the top 4% of global wealth. You're at the 96% or up. If you make $50,000 annually, you're in the top 1%. So, you know, and I don't share that to make you or me feel guilty. It just is a wake-up call to realize, Dale, when I complain about not having enough or this or that, it's because I got rich man problems, not poor man problems. And it just helps me to understand that, wow, when God says instruct those who are rich in this current world to be a little more generous and be rich in good works and ready to share, he's calling us out. He's calling me out. So it demonstrates my faith in Christ whenever I'm willing to cut back on this or have a little less of that or whatever, but I do it in order to be generous because then I get the joy of being a little more generous every year. One of my challenges to people that say, yeah, Dale, I'd love to do this, but man, I'm, I'm already deep in debt and I'm in a lifestyle that I can't afford to be more generous. Here's my challenge is this. Begin with this 1% factor. Here's my tip for you. Give one more percent of your income this year than you did last year. Figure out what percentage you gave and at least give one percent more. If you really want to be challenged, set aside 10% of everything God gives you and the first thing you do is give it away. That's something that my wife taught me to do early in our marriage and it's really served us well. And, uh, and, and, and many of, of our leaders do that. So I, that's the real goal that I want to get you to, is to be giving away the first 10% that God gives you and just learn to live on 90% or less. And, 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 and there's tremendous joy in that type of generosity. But if you're not there yet and you're saying, oh, Dale, this is the first time I ever heard about this. This is radical thinking. Then at least say this. What if for the next 10 years you gave 1% more than you gave the previous year? Guess what? Within 10 years, you're giving at least 10% of your income away. And you could adjust to it. So whichever challenge you want to take, create a plan and, and, and move in that direction. 
Why else does it make sense to do this? Last but not least, he says, when you do this, this generosity focuses our hope with Christ in eternity. So not only does my love for Jesus get displayed by my generosity, my faith in Jesus gets displayed as I choose to live off less and give more and trust him, but my hope is more focused in eternal things instead of earthly things. And Jesus himself in Matthew 6 said this. He said, don't be a fool. This is Jesus talking, not Dale. I would never call you a fool. But Jesus would. He said, you're a fool if you lay up your treasure on earth where it's going to stay behind when you die instead of laying up treasure in heaven, which will never be taken away. So Jesus and also this passage in 1 Timothy 6 says, lay up treasure in heaven not on the earth. And how do you do that? You do it by investing in people and causes and compassion and generosity, both here locally and around the world in Africa. There's all kinds of ways for you to say, God, let me invest a little more of what you give me, not in being a taker, but in being a giver. Don't live to take or to get. Get a job. And then whatever job God supplies, practice the joy of generosity. That's life. Pray with me. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the fact that we can be called by Christ and to the, by the Word of God to live differently. And I pray as the band comes to Lead us in a couple great songs that uh, we will enjoy uh, even as we give now. Wow, this is the highlight of the service. I pray that we would laugh our way through the offering because of the joy of getting to give to you. Seriously, I pray that this would be a highlight of our worship is the joy of generosity. And not just giving to the church, Father, but let us uh, go to work looking looking for people that have needs and that we can surprise them. We can buy them lunch. We can buy them something. We can give them a gift. We can put a few bucks in an envelope and say, you know, I know you're facing something tough. Maybe this will help you. Create in us a radical, generous spirit so that we're not just looking to take, we're looking to give. And even as we give now in our weekly discipline of our offering, let this be some high worship to you in Christ's name. Amen.